God, thank you so much for this morning, just for the Sabbath day that we can come here uh, to your house this morning and worship you and give you all the praise and glory and honor that you deserve. And thank you for a Sunday school hour where we can continue to go through this confession uh, and today's chapter on the Sabbath day and the rest and the worship that we can enjoy uh, as believers in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this group and for our church here in Weatherford. We pray that you continue to bless it. Bless the worship service afterward and the preaching of the word. May it continue to convict us of our sin and point us to Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lamb. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So chapter 22 on the Sabbath is, um, there's a lot packed in here. Eight paragraphs of quite a bit of material. So I really do want to kind of hit the quadrants on the back page, which I'm kind of breaking this into... The, um, the points of, is the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, is it universal or binding on everyone without regard to time or nationality? Which I think is an important question in our day. Quadrant two would be, is the, is the Sabbath day to be observed on Sunday or is it still to be observed on Saturday or the seventh day of the week? The regulative principle, which talks about what is permitted to be part of your worship service on uh, a Sunday morning, and Sabbath day observance. So all topics that are quite weighty, especially in today's world and our culture, I think, where we really have uh, a push to deminimize or not to have uh, a really kind of a distinctive Sabbath day throughout the week. And I really want to impress on us that I think this day is super important. And it's, I'm just glad that you're all here on Sunday morning, right? To have a Sunday school and to be part of this discussion. So without that, without that introduction, let me just, um, I know it's really small on the page, but I really wanted to make this one piece of paper in total. But can we have volunteers to just read through the paragraphs? One person to read paragraph one. Justin, somebody to read paragraph two. Michael, three. Charlie, four. Short ones. Brandon, five. Abby, six. Andrew, seven. Ryan, and eight. All right, Ashley in front. Thank you. Go ahead, Justin. The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all. Is just, good, and not good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, and called upon, trusted in, and served with, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. So the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and the vices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not described in the Holy Scriptures. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the meditation of any other but Christ alone. Prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men. But that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, 
love, and perseverance, and with others in a known tongue. Paragraph 4. Prayers to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin of, unto death. The reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing of the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of the religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him, with understanding, faith, reverence, and a godly fear, moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgiving. And thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Paragraph 6. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now, under the gospel, tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed, or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere, in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily, and in the secret each one by himself. So more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence calls thereunto. Paragraph 7. As it is the law of nature, that in general a portion of time, by God's appointment, be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word and positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, uh, binding all men and in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day and seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. From the resurrection of Christ, which changed from the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Paragraph 8. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord, when men, after a due preparing of their hearts, and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Great. Thanks, everybody, for reading. Just want to start out by like as an introduction to kind of reflect back, if you can, to kind of maybe some of your childhood experiences on Sundays. I don't know how many of you grew up in homes where there was restrictions on Sundays or different rules on Sundays. Some of you can remember the blue laws, right? And some things are still in effect, right? We haven't actually abolished all of that, but there is... Still quite a bit of Sabbath day observance in the secular culture, even though it does feel to be less and less so as we engage in all things just like the other normal six days of the week. My own childhood experience, I remember I did grow up in a conservative Christian home, and I praise God for that. My parents were really godly people. And uh, we had some rules that I remember kind of questioning when I was young. Like, I could play catch, but I couldn't bounce a basketball. <laughs> and, I th and I think, I mean, I never asked my parents, but I kind of wonder, part of it was because catch was a little bit more, you could play in the backyard, bouncing a basketball a little louder, people maybe could see. Maybe there was just that perception. Um, but there was definitely things that I couldn't do. I couldn't play with friends on, on Sunday. 
And I'm sure some of you in your own past have had rules, or maybe even as parents, you've had like, all right, what do we want to do with our own kids on Sunday? Like, what would be the limits and restrictions of what would be permitted on Sundays or not? And that's quite a bit of a controversial topic even today, right? I would say. How about the worship wars we've had? That terminology, right, about what would be appropriate from a music perspective in church when a lot of churches started to go very much more contemporary music versus traditional and the worship wars that ensued. All of this in the confession in chapter 22 is addressed really in these eight paragraphs, right? It talks about what's permitted in worship. It talks about how you observe the Sabbath. It talks about whether or not this is still universal and binding on everybody. And it talks about what day of the week we observe the Sabbath. There was a kid's book that actually was just released um, last month. Here's some of the quotes from it. It's a kid's book written from a kid's perspective about Sundays. Some of the quotes was, to tell the whole Sunday story, I have to start on Saturday evening, which I thought was a really interesting quote. So this is, again, kind of a, you'd read it to your kids, uh, kind of a lot of illustrations in here, but I thought some really good adult points. The, the little boy who's writing the, the story from his perspective says, the longest part of the church service is the sermon. It's long, my dad says, because God has a lot to say about himself and his gift of Jesus. The drive home after the service is a great time for our family to talk about what happened during worship. I always know what my dad is going to ask as soon as we pull onto the street. Okay, kids, what did you learn about God and his amazing grace this morning? The whole book is actually from a song. I don't know if anybody has sung this before. It's called Safely Through Another Week. Day of all the week, the best. Emblem of eternal rest. That's one of the verses in the song. So, kids' book, talking a lot about what Sabbath day looked like. Voltaire, the French philosopher, once said, if you want to destroy Christianity, you would take away their Bible, and you would take away their day, their Sabbath. That would be how you destroy Christianity. Well, I want to kick us off with really starting on that far left quadrant on the top. Talking about, is the fourth commandment universal or binding on all regard, without regard to time or nationality? There are people who will argue that it was only designed for the Old Testament Israel. So it's not binding on New Testament believers. It was only for Old Testament Israel. And therefore, it's not binding in today's day and age. So Exodus 28 through 11, which you guys have all been very familiar with, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So that's the Ten Commandments, right? The Fourth Commandment, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. So the Confession is arguing that, yes, the Fourth Commandment is still binding and universal in today's age for the New Testament believer. So the Confession is arguing, and I would agree with that, that this is still binding and universal on today's society. Why would I argue that? 
And what does the confession say? Well, one is that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. One is that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. A creation ordinance would be an ethical norm, and this is just one definition, which is based upon the work of God in creation. An activity or institution which God set up and which God set up for all mankind to observe perpetually until the end of the world. So it's a creation ordinance. It came from God in creation. That's why it says six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath. Four in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day God rested. Standards imposed by God, another way to argue that this is a creation ordinance, they all correspond to the way in which God made man and so are for our good. To go against creation ordinances is to go against the nature of things as how God has made them. Genesis 2, 2 through 3, God resting from his creative labors, so to speak, and resting on the seventh day, he blessed it. And blessing it is significant. By blessing it, he's setting it as a standard for everyone to follow. John Murray, God fully intended that unfallen man in his task of godly dominion would need to suspend his weekly labors in order to refresh himself with the exercises of concentrated worship. You can see how Exodus 20 grounds its commandment in the creation ordinance. It talks about why we do what we do because of how God instituted uh, when he was creating the world, having the seventh day as a day of rest. That's not to say that God instituted a pattern and then needed to go back to work the next six days, right? He didn't work six days, take a day off, start working again six days. Of course, God could have created the world in two minutes or a minute and then, but the way he set up his pattern was six days of creation and then a day of rest a pattern that we are to follow. Other creation ordinances, just so you know that this isn't just related to the Sabbath day, right? Bearing children, stewarding the earth, or to rule, marriage. You look back at Genesis 2, you see all those creation ordinances. This is just not related to the Sabbath. And then I just want to point out that creation ordinances do have a universal obligation, as you can see from the New Testament. So this is just not an Old Testament. And I point you to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 on divorce, for instance, as proving that this is a creation ordinance because Jesus' teaching on divorce goes back to marriage as a creation ordinance uh, from Genesis 2. As a creation ordinance, it applies to all mankind. And why does it apply to all mankind? Because it applied to Adam, who is... And we've talked about this in our covenant class and foundations and other places, right? Adam is the covenant representative or the federal head for all mankind. It's not just the Jews. This was ordered and instituted before even Adam fell into sin, right? This was something that was part of how Adam was supposed to be before the fall, and it applied to him, just as we see in Romans 5, Adam was the federal head, the representative of all mankind. So this would be something we would say would be applied or applicable to us. And the point that a lot of people will make is that the Sabbath is part of the ceremonial law and thus done away with 
or abrogated by the death of Christ? We'll see, and, and I will argue that that's not the case because the Sabbath was instituted before Adam fell into sin. So it actually was part of the, uh, the law that God had before Adam fell into sin. The ceremonial law was instituted because there was a need for a savior and a pointing towards Christ. But there was no need for a savior before Adam fell into sin. Galatians 4, Colossians 2, 16, and Romans 14, 5 through 6 are big passages that a lot of people point to to argue that the Sabbath day is ceremonial. So again, Galatians 4, 10, Colossians 2, 16, and Romans 14, 5, and 6. Paul, in those passages, is talking a lot about new festivals, new moons, the do away with the Sabbath days, etc. So a lot of people point to that and say, well, isn't that Paul arguing that the Sabbath day was truly ceremonial? And therefore, if it's ceremonial, it's not really needed anymore in today's New Testament dispensation. And I would argue that if you look at the context of what Paul is arguing in those passages, he was arguing that this, in context, was part of the addition to the Sabbath day. If you look at the Sabbath day and what was instituted in the Old Testament, there were additions to the Sabbath day, right? There were things added to the Sabbath day that were ceremonial in nature. It wasn't that the Sabbath day itself was ceremonial, but there were parts that were added to the Sabbath day to make it ceremonial. There were sacrifices that had to be done. There was the showbread and the priest that had to do some work and some rituals, which were all pointing towards the future redemption work of Christ. But that doesn't mean that the Sabbath day itself was ceremonial. There might have been parts that were ceremonial. And if you look at the context, especially in Galatians and other parts, right, what's Paul arguing in Galatians? The point of that book, which we went through not that long ago as a sermon series, was really against works righteousness, right? There were Jews who were still arguing that there had to be faith plus something to be saved. And so Paul is arguing against that, saying, no, you guys are trying to add on and say, in order to be saved, there has to be faith plus. But that's not the case. Faith alone is what saves. So I would say that those passages, although a lot of people point to them as saying that they were part of the ceremonial law and Paul was doing away with it, was really Paul doing away with the ceremonial aspects of what people added to the Sabbath day. I would say also, if the Sabbath day is ceremonial, if the Sabbath day would be ceremonial, I would argue, would it be immoral then for us to observe it? If the Sabbath day was ceremonial, would it be immoral for us to observe it? In other words, if we're commanded in Galatians 4.9 not to return to the ways, the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, would that mean that we would be immoral to observe the Sabbath day? My whole point is really to kind of draw that distinction between the Sabbath day as being a creation ordinance instituted by God that's something that carries into the New Testament versus ceremonial aspects of the law that was added to the Sabbath day that has been abrogated or done away with by Christ's redemptive work. Next, I want to argue that the Sabbath day is universal or binding because it's included in the Ten Commandments. It's included in the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. It's included in the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Why is this important? Well, I feel like if God would have wanted this to be ceremonial, 
he wouldn't have just popped it into the middle of the Ten Commandments and made the other nine commandments universally binding or perpetual and not have this one be. So it does feel different to me to have a Ten Commandments where you would say nine of them still carry into the New Testament and into our day and age. But this one, no, this one was abrogated by Christ. Ten equals perfection or completeness, right? I think the fact that the Fourth Commandment is part of the Ten Commandments or part of the Decalogue shows it's a moral law like the others would be. We wouldn't argue that the others don't carry force in today's day and age. I don't think this one would either. Some people have argued that the introduction to the Ten Commandments, where God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, shows that the Sabbath was only for the Jews, right? Talking about bringing you out of Egypt. But you would note that this preface actually is for all the Ten Commandments, right? That's not the preface for the Fourth Commandment. That's the preface for all the Ten Commandments, not just the Fourth. And I think we would all agree that the Ten Commandments, do not lie, do not murder, do not steal, would still apply today. Also, note that the Fourth Commandment applies to sojourners within your gates, right? People who were not in covenant with God at this point. They didn't observe the ceremonial law, so those sojourners were also commanded to respect the Sabbath day. Again, we must distinguish between the permanent moral Sabbath and the temporary mosaic additions to it. I like this quote, the ceremonial Sabbaths and the ceremonial temple system were imposed upon the ancient moral Sabbath as clothes placed upon the body. Going on, I think it's also included in the prophets in such a way that we could see that this is universally binding or moral, included in the prophets. Isaiah 56, 1 and 2, keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath day, or keeps from defiling the Sabbath so I think there you see that the prophets talked about respecting and observing the Sabbath day. And I would say it's still included in the New Testament, right? We see Jesus' teaching still included in the New Testament. Matthew 12, 8, which is the passage where Jesus' disciples plucked some heads of grain and the Pharisees came and said, hey, your disciples, what are they doing? They're violating the Sabbath day. And then Jesus says, you don't understand what the Sabbath day really is, do you? In this teaching, a lot of people argue, did, did Christ relax or did he repeal the Sabbath because it was merely ceremonial? And I would argue that Christ isn't relaxing it, but he's rather explaining or expounding how the Sabbath is to be observed. It's still under the Mosaic law at that point, right? But the Pharisees had added so many legalistic or pharisaical additions to the Sabbath. They had put on, you cannot do this. You cannot pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath day. And here Christ is explaining and, the, and telling them, no, you're not understanding. You guys have to distinguish even between the ceremonial aspects which have been added in the Bible versus what the Pharisees had added into the, the Sabbath day observance as part of their own tradition or rules. And Christ had to explain to them why that wasn't correct. Why would Christ relax the Old Testament law and then use David 
and the Levitical priests as an example in that passage too, because Christ went back and pointed out to what David had done in that passage. I want to talk a little bit about Hebrews 4, 9 and 10, which is kind of a critical passage, I think, in the Sabbath day observance. So if you wanted to turn to there, you can feel free to go there. But Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 talks about, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Seems like there's three interpretations of Hebrews 4 in this context. One would be people would argue that this actually proves that the Sabbath day isn't in perpetuity. It's not binding or it's not universal at this point. Instead, they would say, this passage is saying that believers cease from their evil works. Like this is just telling people, stop doing evil works. Your whole life, every day of the week, is intended to be Sabbath rest. Every day of the week is intended to be Sabbath rest. They would argue that the weekly Sabbath was but a type or foreshadow. It's pointing ahead to the Christian's rest in Christ. I would argue that in the context of this passage, looking even back into Hebrews 3, starting at verse 7, it's not speaking of the Christians ceasing from evil works, but it's really talking about that great final eschatological rest we have in Christ. It's speaking of that great final eternal rest we have in Christ. It's applied to believers of every age including the Old Testament, when the Sabbath day was clearly in force. The great future rest never changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The second argument would be that Hebrews 4.9 is actually only referring to the weekly Sabbath, not future eternal Sabbath. So some people will say Hebrews 4.9, talking about the Sabbath rest, is really only referring to the weekly Sabbath, not future eternal Sabbath. I would say that this passage is about the future eternal Sabbath, looking at the context, but 4.9 would be referencing the Sabbath day as we understand it today. And that's because the word rest in Greek, everywhere else that's used in this passage, is a different word than how it's used in Hebrews 4.9. And you'll notice that the ESV has actually put the word Sabbath rest in there. That word is a different word in Greek than the other uses of the word rest in there. And you have to remember the context of Hebrews. It was written to the Jews, right, to reassure them of their faith. And keeping the Sabbath, which both look back on creation, right? We know that from the creation ordinance in Exodus 20, looking back at creation, and it's also looking forward to that final redemption, that eternal rest. So that would have strengthened them in their faith. When you're writing to the Jews and you're trying to encourage them in their faith, you would argue that, hey, you both get to look back at creation, what God has done, and look at the redemption that Christ has accomplished for you looking forward. There does remain a Sabbath rest. And I would also argue that remaining a Sabbath rest indicates a reference to the present, not just a look to the past. 
or the future. All right, so I can keep moving on. The seventh day or first day, I want to kind of move to the top right quadrant. Which day of the week should the Sabbath be observed? There is no direct divine commandment talking about the Sabbath day being observed on Sunday. But I think it's deduced from Scripture. And I think you can deduce it both from the theology, from analogy, and from historical example. So first, Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And I do have in your outline the reference, Revelations 1.10, right? The first day of the week, the Lord's Day, when John was writing Revelation. Very specific, talking about when he was writing this, the Lord's Day. But I think we can really go on a lot of what's in the New Testament to say that the Sabbath day went from the sixth day to the first day, or the seventh day to the first day of the week. Christ chose to appear to his disciples on the first day of the week. You can see that in Matthew 28, 9 and Luke 24 and John 20, 19, carefully noted in scripture, right? It's not arbitrary. It wasn't put there just because it was put there for a reason. And I think that there's a universal practice of the early church of meeting together on Sunday or the first day of the week. The disciples met to worship on Pentecost Sunday, which is Acts 2.1. And that's when the Holy Spirit was outpoured or given to the church. And I think you can also see that on, in Acts 20, verse 7, which says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, in Acts 20, verse 7. Revelation 1.10, just to go back to that for a second, when John wrote and I was in on the Lord's Day, is an expression I think early Christians would have recognized as the first day of the week or the day of Christ's resurrection. I think John was very intentional writing that. And then also I'd point you to 1 Corinthians 16.1 and 2, which talks about Paul's command to give tithes to the poor. I think that also talks about the first day of the week. And I don't think it's a coincidence or an accident that that chapter comes right after 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the significance of Christ's resurrection. The significance of Christ's resurrection being on the first day of the week, and then Paul moving into 1 Corinthians 16, talking about giving to the poor on the Lord's day. Psalm 118.22 is also a passage that identifies the Lord's day as the day of Christ's resurrection, referenced in Acts 4.8 when Peter addresses the Sanhedrin. I think also another uh, really good reason why the first day of the week should be the Lord's Day is that Christ's redemptive work happened on Sunday, right? His resurrection. It's a creation of the new world. It's a creation of the new world or a new covenant. His perfect life. His atonement, his victory, are foundations of a regeneration of all things. The New Testament in Revelation 3.14 talks about Jesus being the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Colossians 1.15-18 talks about the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's the passage on the preeminence of Christ. I think also the eighth day which now gets from the seventh day, the Sabbath, to the first day of the next week, or the eighth day, has really huge significance in the Old Testament. 
Noah, eight family members were saved from the flood. Circumcision happened on the eighth day. The dedication of your firstborn son happened on the eighth day. And the day of cleansing from defilement, Leviticus 14.10, happened on the eighth day. A lot of pointing towards this final redemptive work of Christ, which happened on the eighth day or the first day of the next week. And I think Deuteronomy 5.15, which is the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, give a lot of support for that. Because in that Ten Commandments, it talks about the, in the Fourth Commandment that it's not just pointing back to the creation, but it's also pointing back to the redemptive work of, of, of God in saving his people from Egypt. So I think there's a pointing towards the redemptive work in Egypt, which points forward to the redemptive work of Christ, which happened on the first day of the week. All right, I want to move on to the regulative principle quickly. There's a lot to pack in here, people. I'm sorry to move forward really fast, but you can ask questions uh, afterwards. You can all disagree with me or, or challenge me on points, but I do want to get to the regulative principle because I think it's really important. What's the definition of the regulative principle? The corporate worship of God is to be based or regulated on the specific directions of Scripture. The corporate worship of God is to be based or regulated upon the specific directions of Scripture. I think you find that in Deuteronomy 12.32, Colossians 2.16-23. What does that mean? It means we're not free to add whatever we want to the worship service. Some people take the opposite view, right? If it's not prohibited in Scripture, they think it's allowed in your worship service. If it's not prohibited in Scripture, you can have it in your worship service. Regulative principle says if it's not actually expressed specifically in Scripture as what could be part of your worship service, you can't have it in your worship service. God has specifically prescribed what should be part of the worship service. And that's what we would follow here. And that's what's part of the confession, right? What are those elements? Preaching, reading, and hearing the word of God. Preaching, reading, and hearing the word of God. The administration of the sacraments. The administration of the sacraments. Prayer. And singing. Preaching, reading, and hearing the word of God. Administration of the sacraments. Prayer. And singing. You could probably put in there giving. Pointing back towards 1 Corinthians 16 again. 1 and 2, where Paul talks about giving tithes to the poor or for the church to give to the poor. We have to remember that worship is to glorify God. Moving up to that blank at the top. Worship is to glorify God. It isn't for us. It's not seeker-friendly. It's to glorify God and to worship Him. We're not in church to fellowship. We're not in church for entertainment. We're not in church to get a moral lesson. We're in church to worship God, and we specifically are here to do what God has commanded us to do and prescribe for us in the Bible. Let me just note that within the specifics, there is freedom, right? So in other words, if you said, all right, we're supposed to meet for public worship on Sunday, well, you are free to determine the time you can meet on a Sunday for worship. You have freedom within the specifics to have your own church decide on what to do best. I would say there's freedom with music. We're told to sing songs, spiritual songs, psalms, and hymns, right? There's freedom within there to determine the best music. 
Now, as our church body, we really take intentionally that the music we sing aligns with Scripture and the Bible and that we wouldn't sing something that we don't feel like ascribes or is in accordance with our theology or our doctrine. So there is that guardrail or parameter, which I think is natural and common sense, but within the regulative principle and what God has prescribed, there is freedom, variance as of time of worship, etc. I think a good overarching principle um, for this would be in Colossians, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 14, 40. If somebody wants to grab that for me, otherwise I can just read it. But I think this is a good overarching principle for our corporate worship. 1 Corinthians 14, 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. All things should be done decently and in order. We're here to glorify God. We should do things decently and in order as the New Testament tells us to. Lastly, Sabbath day observance. We are called to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, Exodus 28. Resting requires faith. We must submit our whole being to God. I think Sabbath day observance should focus on rest and worship. The Hebrew word Shabbat, which is the Sabbath day, would mean to rest or cease. I think we keep it holy by resting from our normal worldly endeavors or employments, except for works of necessity or mercy. We can see Jesus is teaching in the New Testament. Work is good. We're commanded in Genesis that we're to work. So we're not to take this as something where it's bad to work. But I think on the Sabbath day, we're commanded to rest. And I think that means to rest from our worldly employments, except if there is work of necessity or mercy. Notice even in Deuteronomy 5.14, the animals were commanded to rest. It's not even just all people, but animals. A quick story, there were coal mines in Pennsylvania that they used to use mules to haul coal cars, and they would do that seven days a week, and they found out that the mules were going blind because they were in those dark coal mines all the time. And when they started giving them one day a week to get outside and graze in the sunlight, they kept their sight, and they could actually work longer. God commanded animals even to rest on the Sabbath day. Nehemiah 13, 15 to 17, I think is instructive here too. In those days, I saw the people of Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves, loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. What evil thing is that you do, which you profane the Sabbath day? I just want to put it out there for all of us to consider, like, what does the Sabbath day observance look like for us? Does it extend to our thoughts and our conversations? How do you view homework even on a Sabbath day? Recreation has been a huge area of controversy, right? There were the Puritans who actually got their way in this confession. You can see this, right? That you're to abstain from recreation, whereas the other continental reform people took a different view of recreation. And there is a legend or myth that John Knox, when he fled from Scotland from persecution, went to visit John Calvin in Geneva. And John Calvin was lawn bowling on Sunday afternoon. 
But I would say from recreation in Isaiah 58, which is the passage, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, this is where the recreation argument comes in, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. My own personal view is that that Isaiah passage is not referring to recreation per se, but that prophetic word of Isaiah was really referring to commerce more than it was recreation. And you can see that from Nehemiah, where there was a lot of people who wanted to work seven days a week and make money, and they would bring in their goods to sell on the Sabbath day, and I think that's where Isaiah 58 was going. But again, I know there's a lot of opposing views on that. What are you permitted to do on the Sabbath day? Works of necessity and works of mercy, right? Matthew 12, 5, talking about necessity, mercy, Matthew 12, 12. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. We're allowed to do works of uh, mercy and necessity. Lastly, I just want to end with this. Service and worship of God. Sabbath is not just a day of rest, but a day of rest in order that the people of God may devote themselves to holy exercises. Even Jesus, as was his custom, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. We're told in Hebrews 25, don't neglect the gathering of the saints, the church. Family worship is important too on the Sabbath day. See that in Leviticus 23.3. And private worship. It's a day where we can focus on God and his works. Celebrate and mediate on the completed perfection redemption of Christ. Let me just end us with Psalm 118.22-24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's supposed to be a day of joy and gladness. So I know I just packed a ton into 45 minutes, so happy afterwards to talk through anything, and there's quite a bit in this material, so you can reach out to any, any of us elders. We are working our way through a Sabbath book as part of our devotions as elders, and I think it's been really helpful um, just to kind of think through this a bit more as well. So with that, let me close this with prayer as we go to corporate worship. Father, we're just so thankful for this day, the Sabbath day, which you've set apart for us to rest and worship you and how you've given us in your holy word how to worship you, that we can hear from you, that we can sing praises to you, that we can pray to you. And Father, we just pray and ask that our worship be acceptable and holy in your sight. May we continue to honor you and glorify you in all things. May our observance not just be because it's pharisaical or legalistic. May we truly in our heart want to praise you and worship you and give you the due honor you deserve. We thank you for this time we could spend together as we prepare our hearts and minds now for corporate worship. May we continue to rest in the perfect promises of Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.